I hope that I don't step on any toes uh, with this illustration. If I do, I, I just want to apologize in advance. Um, but I visited the home of a hoarder a few weeks ago. She was a lovely lady, uh, and I honestly enjoyed my time with her immensely. Uh, she was kind and caring, and I could tell that there was a deep loneliness in her. She was guarded when she invited me into her home, and once inside, I knew why. I could tell that it was an embarrassment to her, and clutter was everywhere, and piles of possessions stacked to the ceilings, no exaggeration, and boxes brimming with belongings. The home reeked of cat urine, and I looked around, and I realized that she had quite literally barricaded herself inside her home with her belongings. It was almost impossible for anyone to get into and out of her home. She escorted me through a tiny, narrow path, literally just enough for my feet to fit into it, leading from her front door into her kitchen. I was hoping that we would be able to sit at her kitchen table and chat for a while, but soon I realized that her table and the chairs surrounding it were completely covered with clutter piled to the ceiling with things that she had collected over the years. My heart grieved for her pain. She had to clear a piece of furniture for me to be able to sit on. And, um, but as I, I looked around her house, I realized how she had just barricaded herself in. I continued to be curious about her hoarding uh, for weeks following and was asking the Lord about it. And just recently I googled, why do hoarders hoard? And this is what the response came up. Website after web website said, a hoarder, hear me, a hoarder finds it painful to let go of things, so they never do. In that moment, I ever so gently heard the Lord say, Rhea, you can be a hoarder as well. You can hold on to things in your heart that are too painful for you to let go. You can barricade your heart with offenses and, and, and pains that you remember and won't let go in order to keep people at a safe distance so they can't hurt you anymore. I'm so grateful for Brendan. Uh, I called Leah last night and I said, do you think that you know anybody that could make me a barricade? And Brendan volunteered, and look what he came up with just in a few hours. How cool is that? But, but I said, I, I need to be able to barricade myself and put a barricade between me and the people. Do you see, this barricade works perfectly. Brendan did this, and it, it's just perfect. I couldn't have made it any better myself. And, and you see, what, what, what it, how, how it works is that a barricade keeps people out. It says you can come this close and no further. And so many of us are sitting here tonight and we have been wounded. We have been hurt so deeply. We have been done so dirty. And, and the pain of what's been done to us, it, the, the memory of it, we, we've just accumulated it in our heart. Maybe not the first time, maybe not the second time, but time after time after time we've collected pains and heartaches and heartbreaks and, and we've barricaded our heart with them. Hurt me once, shame on you. Hurt me twice, shame on me. And so we've made a barricade in our heart and we relate to people at a distance. You can come this far but no farther. 
because my heart can't take any more pain. The Lord spoke to me that day and said, you have things that are barricading your heart that you need to let go of. I sat in the house with that sweet lady that day and I looked at all that she had accumulated in her life. Most of it, I was going to say some of it, but most of it junk, trash, that should have been pitched away, that she could not let go of. And the Lord could not have more clearly illustrated a picture of my heart to me. You see, I had, I had hoarded things that people had done to me. I was nice to them on the surface because I was behind my barricade, you know. I could say, how you doing? Praise the Lord. <laughs> or I barricaded myself in with anger and hatred. And my anger kept them at a distance because they couldn't hurt me as long as I had the upper hand with my anger. I know people that barricade their heart with, with the need to control. They, they disappear behind their walls and, and they don't have to relate to you and you can't hurt them because they have themselves so walled in. But they will try to control the situation because as long as they can control you, you won't hurt them. It's a barricade. It's a barricade that keeps people at a distance. Some of you are barricaded by unforgiveness. You keep your heart walled in because of offenses and you think, I, I'm not going to let this, this, these feelings of, of unforgiveness go because if I let this barricade down, you will hurt me. If I forgive you, it gives you an opportunity to hurt me again. Hurt me once, shame on you. Hurt me twice, shame on you, shame on me. If you have your Bibles, you can open them to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, General Electric Power Company, go eat popcorn, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, that's how I remember it, Ephesians chapter 4. I normally read from the New King James Version, but tonight I want to read it out of the NIV. It says, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, that's verse 29, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Do your words benefit those who listen to you? Or do they tear them down? Do they wound them even more? It says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. How many of you, especially in a charismatic church, have heard that, that, that verse before? Oh, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. You know, when you, when you don't like the gifts of the Spirit or, or, or you try to quench the Spirit, you're, you're grieving the Spirit of God. Let's use that verse in context. Do not let any unwholesome words come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, but get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger. How do we grieve the Spirit of God? With bitterness, rage, and anger, malice, and slander, and every form of criticism. Look at this. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another forgiving each other just as Christ God forgave you. If you go back to the beginning of that chapter in Ephesians 3, Paul starts by saying uh, that he calls himself a prisoner of the Lord. I, I love that. He says, I beseech you as a prisoner of Christ Jesus. 
He's saying, I belong to him. I'm a prisoner. I can't do anything except what he tells me to do. And then he says, I'm, I'm asking you to walk worthy of the gospel. Oh, what, what would happen, church, if we really began to walk worthy of the gospel? You see, you are the only Bible that some people are ever going to read. That's why we have to be really careful how we're living. And Paul says, you are a prisoner of the Lord. Prisoners, you know, they, they're confined to do what the, what the guard says. Walk worthy of the gospel. He says, in loneliness and gentleness and long-suffering, bear with one another in, in love. Keep unity and peace. He says, no longer walk like the Gentiles do. And when he says, don't, don't do it any longer, that means they already were doing it. And the fertility of their mind with their understandings darkened. He said, they're alienated from the life of God. You're alienated from the life of God, he says, because of the ignorance that's in you. Because of the blindness in your heart, you don't want to see what you're doing is wrong. And you get past feelings. You're not convicted any longer. You don't feel the prick of the spirit any longer. And it's because you've given yourself over. You made the decision to give yourself over to lewdness, to work all uncleanliness and greediness. You see, when we give ourselves over to the enemy to do that kind of stuff, when we participate in lewdness and uncleanliness, we will get past feelings and we will alienate ourselves from the life of God. There is nothing better. Courtney was singing and I felt the life of God. But we alienate ourselves from that when we say, God, I know what you tell me to do and how you tell me to live, but I'm going to do whatever I want to do. And he says, no longer walk like this. It implies that, that some of the people he's addressing had drifted back into unregenerate behavior. That, that involves choice. He says, instead, put off, get rid of. In other words, make a choice to do this. So often we want God to zap us. God, can you just fix this ugly thing in me? Can, can you just make me more forgiving? Can you just make me a kinder person? Can you just zap me and take away this pain? No, God wants us to get rid of it, to make the choice to put it off like we put off filthy clothing. I hate to be filthy. Can I just tell you, I hate when I spill anything on my clothing. I was out yesterday, and I was taking a drink of tea, and it dribbled down over my shirt, and I was like, I want to go home and change my clothing. I don't like to be filthy. And that's the picture he's drawing here. You put off the old man the way we used to behave before we came to Christ. I'm just sorry to say that the church, sometimes we don't, we don't, we don't look any different than the unbeliever down the street. No wonder nobody wants our Jesus. If we just looked a little bit more like him, and that involves putting off the old man and putting on the new one. We make a choice to do this. The Gentiles that he talks about here were living to satisfy their lower nature. He's saying, don't you do that. Don't live to satisfy your fleshly nature. John MacArthur says the idea promoted by some who claim to be evangelicals that a Christian does not have to give up anything or change anything when he becomes a Christian is nothing less than diabolical. That notion under the pretense of elevating God's grace and protecting the gospel from works righteousness will do nothing but send many people confidently down the broad way that Jesus said leads to destruction. Broad is the road that leads to destruction and many find that one. But narrow is the road that leads to life. I, I know that people don't like to hear this, but I'm telling you the broad road, the one that everybody's on, leads to destruction. It's a well-trampled down road because everybody's on it. But the narrow road, 
That, that road, if you, that, if you look that up in the original language, it means a road that that's, it, it hasn't been trampled down because not many people are on it. It's a narrow road. And, and the Bible says few find it. I'm telling you, that disturbs me. It bothers me that a few find it. If you look up that word in the Greek, it means few in numbers, church. Broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many find that one. But narrow, the road that leads to life, Few find it. And it takes choice. It takes choice to live the way God says to live. Look at verse 20. He says, but you have not so learned Christ that way. And that word not means absolutely not. This is not the way you've learned Christ. To do whatever you want. To entertain your flesh. To to do things that you know you should not to do. He said, you haven't learned Christ that way. That word learn means to gain knowledge or to learn by means of instruction. It it means uh, to to direct one's mind to something that produces an external effect. Oh, can I tell you, you should not be sitting here on Sunday morning or Monday night or any time you get before the word of God. You should not just be sitting there to listen, to be entertained. You should be directing your minds for instruction that brings external change. If I am the same person next year, don't come back to this Bible study. If I don't look a little bit different next month than I look this month, don't waste your time sitting under my teaching because the Word of God is powerful, it's effective, and it should bring change in our life. It should bring change in our life. Christians are called to live differently, not the way the world lives. We are in the world, but not of it. And we're called to live differently, to demonstrate the life of the power of, of power to those around us. You heard me say last week, I am aware of what I carry. I know of the power that lives inside of me. When I walk into a room, I expect things to change. I expect the atmosphere to, to step up a notch because I have brought the very power of God into a room. When I lay hands on the sick, I expect them to recover because I understand the power of God that lives within me. And you see, that is what the church should be. We should be taking Christ into the world not waiting for eternity to be with him. He is already in us, and we get to walk into a world and change it and affect it for eternity. We're called to live differently. We're called to live differently. Verse 21 in the Amplified, I love it. It says, assuming that you've really heard him and been taught by him. You see, it's possible to, to, to hear but not hear. That's what Jesus said. Uh, Jesus said, you have ears, but you do not hear. Do you know what that means? That word uh, hear is, is, is Shammah. Hear, O Lord. The Lord or hear, hear. The, the Lord your God is one God. And that word hear, it, it means in the Greek, what the word hear meant to obey. It means that you haven't heard unless you are obeying what you heard. And Jesus is saying, you have ears to hear. You've heard a message, but it hasn't. You haven't obeyed it. You haven't applied it to your life. You have ears to hear, but do not hear. Notice the, the, the number of alls in the passage that we read tonight. It's mentioned twice. It, it means get rid of all. And it means radically all. It means all of any and every kind. It means everything whatsoever. It means all without exception. 
It means that your situation, get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, malice, and slander. Dear one, you do not have the situation that's the exception here. You might say, Rhea, you don't know what I've been through. You don't know what's been done to me. You don't know the words that were spoken over me or the pain that, that, that people did to me. Oh, can I tell you what? I know all without exception. I know that yours is not the one excuse to be able to be bitter about. Yours is not the one thing to be able to harbor unforgiveness about. It is all without exception. He's ridding us of all excuses to justify our behavior. There's no reason to believe that, that your situation or my situation is the one exception to the rule. I remember reading a commentary that said the distinguishing mark of sinful anger is selfishness. I didn't get my way and I want my way. I didn't get my rights and I demand my rights. You sinfully use anger to try to dominate and control other people because you believe Yours is the one justifiable reason to hang on to it. He says, get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger. I want to talk to you about how we use bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, malice, lack of being kind and compassionate, not forgiving, how we use those things as barricades. I looked up the word barricade when the Lord spoke to my heart about that word, and, and the Oxford Dictionary says a barricade is used to block or defend with a barrier. To barricade means to shut oneself or someone into a place by blocking all the entrances. It's something that we put up in our lives to keep ourselves safe, to protect our hearts from further wounding. But who knows, we're all ill-equipped to protect ourselves. That's why he says he's our protector and our defender. We wrongly believe and buy into the lie that as followers of Christ, we get an exemption from pain and heartache. And when, when pain comes our way or wrong is done to us, we not only begin to resent the people who do it, we begin to resent God for falling down on the job and not taking care of us and protecting us. Barriers are something we put up in our lives to keep ourselves safe. I'm here to tell you that when traumas go unhealed and ignored, the pain will just poison your life. He wants us to look at those things that are causing bitterness, rage, and anger, malice, and slander. Sometimes it's easier just to push them down in. One of my favorite preachers, Paula White, says, you can't conquer what you won't confront. And you can't confront what you refuse to acknowledge. For some of us, the pain of what's happened to us, it's just easier to push it down in or to numb it with drugs or alcohol or to eat it away or perform it away or have sex it away. It's easier to just deal with the pain that way. But you can't conquer what you won't confront. And you can't confront what you refuse to acknowledge. Some of you have fortresses built up within you, not just barriers, fortresses. A fortress of protection built around your heart to cope with the pain of your experience. Many of us, myself included, have dealt with our pain incorrectly. We've tried to numb it, medicate it, push it down or ignore it or even deny it's there. But pain undealt with doesn't go away. It must be acknowledged, embraced, surrendered to the skillful healer for a remedy. Jesus himself said, in this world... You may, you, you will have trouble. Not you may, you will. This is Jesus. If you look that scripture up, it's in red. It's Jesus speaking, and who knows that Jesus speaks truth. And, and, and so if Jesus said it, you can count on it being truth. In this world, you will have trouble. 
but take heart, I have overcome the world. That word overcome is Nikeo. It's where we get our word Nike, the swoosh, victory. He's saying, you, you're going to have trouble in this world, but if you just take heart and understand, I will give you the victory on the way out of it. I will give you the victory to break free from it. Your heart is important to God, so important that the word heart is mentioned over a thousand times in Scripture. I want to introduce you to a healer who is familiar with your barricades. One of my favorite scriptures is that he is familiar with all my walls. Do you know that scripture that says he's engraved you on the palm of his hands? Do you know that scripture? The very next verse that follows it says he's familiar with all your walls. He knows exactly what you've done to barricade yourself in. He is familiar with the walls that you've put up to keep other people out and he wants to demolish them. He wants to bring them down and he cares so much about that heart that you've barricaded that he died so he could live in it do you just love that he died so he could live in your heart I believe this passage in Ephesians is about uh, the biggest barricades we wrongly use to protect your heart he says get rid of all bitterness that word all I told you means radically all it means all without exception of every kind and every variety get rid of every variety of bitterness that word bitterness means um, a bitter root producing bitter fruit it means bitter hatred Hear me on this one. It means a long-standing resentment and a spirit that refuses to be reconciled. Bitterness is a smoldering resentment. This can even be, like I said, a resentment towards God because you accuse him of not fulfilling your expectations. It's when you won't let go of something. It's synonymous with the poison of an unforgiving spirit. Somebody does something that we don't like or something that hurts us and we harbor bitterness or resentment towards them. Precept Austin says bitterness resent, reflects a smoldering resentment, a brooding grudge, a brooding grudge-filled attitude, an unwillingness to forgive or a harsh feeling. Bitterness is the opposite of sweetness and kindness. A bitter person harbors resentment and keeps a record of wrongs. We need to let the word of God have its way in our lives. Do you have any trace of bitterness in you tonight? This is a command that it must be put aside. Warren Wearsby says an unforgiving spirit is the devil's playground. And before long it becomes the Christian's battleground. If somebody hurts us, either deliberately or unintentionally, and we do not forgive them, then we begin to develop a bitterness within which hardens the heart. Actually, we're not only hurting the person who hurt us, we're only hurting ourselves. Bitterness in the heart makes us treat, hear me, bitterness in the heart makes us treat others the way Satan treats them. And we should treat others the way God has treated us. In his gracious kindness, God has forgiven us and we should forgive others. One of the scriptures that, that get me so much is, that the Bible says that Jesus forgave for his own sake. Do you know that? See, I, I like to spiritualize it and say, Jesus forgave because he loves me so much. And he didn't want anything separating me from him. And that's all true. But there's a scripture that says that Jesus forgives for his own sake. Dear ones, can I tell you that we forgive not because somebody deserves it, not because somebody is sorry enough, not that because somebody has, has maybe promises to never do it again. We forgive for our own sake because unforgiveness causes bitterness 
and, and, and smoldering resentment to build up within us. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, bitterness is a state of the spirit. It denotes the sort of persistent sourness. It's an unloving condition, a condition that never sees good in anything, but always contrives to see something wrong or some defect or deficiency. Do you know anybody like that? That they always find fault, they always see something wrong, they're always sour. I, I usually, before COVID, I was speaking out of town every weekend at women's conferences, and one of the things I would do when I went into a women's conference is I would stand in the back and I would scan the crowd. And I was scanning, looking at women's faces because I could see bitterness is written all over their face. I could go through a crowd. I can do it even tonight. I could go through a crowd and say, oh, bitter woman. Bitter, man, something happened to her. Because as much as we try to dress up and, and do our hair just right and wear the right clothing and put up great makeup, can I tell you, you cannot hide bitterness. It shows right here. It shows on your countenance. And that person who hurt you, that person who did you dirty is continuing to win. I am competitive. Can I just tell you, I am fiercely competitive. I like to win. Anybody besides me, you do not want to play board games with me because I like to win. And I can pout if I don't. I'm just going to tell you that right now. And, and, and you see, if we just got that competitive with the enemy, because the Bible says that we don't battle against flesh and blood. Your battle is not against the person who hurt you, the person that did you dirty. Your battle is against principalities and evil forces. Your battle is, is behind that person who hurt you. It was about the enemy of your soul who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And you need to get that competitive spirit and say, he is not stealing any longer from me. He has done enough damage in my life, and I am going to forgive, and I am going to love, because God tells me that is the way to life. And you, Satan, enemy of my soul are not going to steal from me any longer. We've got to wise up, church. We've got to wise up. Bitterness is from a life that's become sour. The word for bitterness actually it refers to something that's acidic. And I think that's so appropriate because bitterness will literally eat you alive. Leslie and I met a bitter person yesterday. We were blown away by it. You see, she tried to put a smile on her face, but the bitterness was all over her. She opened her mouth and she tried to say sweet, kind words, but they came out with a bite because it was bitterness inside of her. My heart aches for her because it was like an acid that was eating her alive. Get rid of all bitterness. Get rid of all rage, all, any of every kind. That word rage means passion, anger, heat, anger boiling up and soon subsiding again. It's different from the anger that she used next. Uh, I thought anger, it should be anger first and then rage. But then as I began to study, I realized that a, rage here is just anger rising up and then soon subsiding. It's you get, you let it off your chest and then it subsides. But anger, the next word, is a smoldering. It's a, it's a long-lived and anger held on to. But this word rage, it means a burst of anger. It's an agitated condition of feelings. Anybody ever know anybody, don't raise your hand, who's, who's agitated and they just, they, they just sound off. They have, uh, they, they have a burst of anger for no reason. It means to be mad and explode. The command is get rid of that. Don't let that garbage in your life. I'm preaching to myself. Can I tell you, I'm not preaching at you. 
I'm preaching the word of God that, that is powerful and effective and it changes our lives. Get rid of all anger. Rage is anger that rises up and then subsides. But the Greek word for anger here is anger that becomes habitual. It's an anger that's been internalized and a resentment that's become settled. It refers to an inner deep resentment that sees and, sol- and smolders. I love this because I know a lot of people who will say, I'm pa- can I tell you, I'm passionate. People say, you are way too much for me. You are a strong cup of coffee. And if you only knew what I've been delivered from. You, you, people say, why do you preach the way you preach? Because I was once blind, but now I see. And I was once lost, but now I'm found. And I will spend the rest of my life preaching about it. I am passionate about my Jesus. But I'm passionate about anger, too. You do not want to mess with me. Because passion doesn't get to pick and choose. I'm a passionate person. And so people will say to me, I don't have, I don't have passion like you do. I don't, I don't show anger like you do, Rhea. No, you just push it down in. And you bury it, and it smolders, and it builds up. You just hoard it, like my friend the hoarder. And you just keep compiling it in your, in your life, and you keep kept keeping a record of wrong here and here and here, and you just keep pushing it down, pushing it down, pushing it down, and refuse to let go of it. It's, just, it's what this word anger means. Not my kind that, that rages and gets it over with and is all fine. Neither are good. He says, get rid of both of those. This is an anger that can be covered over and disguised, can be dressed up, (laughs) an anger that's pushed down and held on to a simmering resentment. He says, get rid of all anger. Get rid of all brawling. That word brawling or clamor, some of your translations might say clamor. It's an expression of anger. It's when you get loud. I'm loud. It it has to do with yelling, shouting, fighting, arguing. It's loud and boisterous. It's angry, bickering. Any, anybody ever know a couple that bickers all the time? That's what it's talking about here. Get rid of that. Get rid of it. Put it off. Get rid of all slander. Uh, slander is speech, listen to this, which seeks to wound someone else's reputation by evil reports. It's speaking evil about someone with a view to changing another's perception about that person. I'm going to talk to you about so-and-so, and I might even mask it as a prayer request. See, I think gossip is passive slander. Amen. You know, people in church will say, can I just tell you about so-and-so? I, I need you to pray for her. She's, she's doing this, this, and all that is a slander. It's, it's gossip in the form of a prayer request in church. We need to put it off. But slander is, as I don't want you to think a lot of that person, so I'm just going to say something that taints your view of them. Church, we have got to get rid of that stuff. We've got to get rid of it. One commentator says it means abusive language. It's when you, this commentator said, it's when somebody cuts in front of you and you start screaming at them in the car. Lest you thought slander was about you just slandering someone's reputation to another person. Slander, this commentator says, is when you're in the car and you start yelling at somebody, that is slander. And God's word says we're to put it off. The word is blasphemia. It's where we get our word blasphemy when it talks about blaspheming the Holy Spirit. It means literally to speak harm. It means to bring into ill repute and to slander, to defame, to speak evil of, to rail at, to scold in harsh, abusive language. 
the act of uttering false charges or misrepresentations maliciously. It's calculated to damage another person's reputation. So you say, Rhea, how does that connect with blaspheming God? Well, to slander people is to slander God because they're created in his image and in his likeness. So if I slander you, I'm slandering the God whose image you were created in. If I find fault with you, I'm finding fault with God in whose image you were created. MacArthur says the believer's speech must not be marred by insults or disparaging remarks directed at others. James says that from the same mouth come blessing and cursings, and my brothers, this ought not to be. Can I tell you that all of these things arise from a bitter, unforgiving heart, a heart that's been barricaded, a heart that's been collecting, who's been hoarding for years. Get rid of every form of malice, he says, and malice is a desire to injure. How many of you have ever had a desire to injure somebody with your words? Get rid of every form of malice. It's ill will. It's being mean-spirited or having a vicious attitude. It's hatefulness. Martin Lloyd-Jones says malice means wicked desires with respect to others, a determination to harm others, again, a settled spirit in which so hates others that it thinks of ways of harming them, plots of ways, gloats over them, and then proceeds to put them into practice. How many of you have ever, somebody's hurt you, and you've laid in bed at night, and you've rehearsed ways, and when I see them, I'm going to say this, or when I see them, I'm going to do this, and I'm, I'm going to get back. That's malice. It's ill will directed at another. Webster says that malice is a desire to cause pain, injury, or distress to another. It has an unexplainable desire to see another suffer. Jesus. He says, put it off, put it away. That word put away means to raise up, to elevate, to lift off. I, that bothered me. I was like, Lord, how does that work? I, I can see that putting away means to remove, to get it out of the way. But what does it mean to raise up? And, and, and it means to carry away or to take by force. That I could understand, but to, to raise up? I, I was like, Lord, where's the connection? And then I read that a commentator said it means to lift up something like the anchor of a ship so that the ship could set sail. Oh, do you love that picture? Do you love that bitterness, rage, and anger, malice, and slander, and every form of criticism keeps our anchor down and keeps us from sailing? keeps us from freedom, keeps us from life abundant. And he's saying, get rid of it. Raise the anchor to those things and get them out of your life so that you can sail with freedom and liberty through this life. So that you can run and not be weary, that you can soar on wings like eagles. So many of us are sitting here tonight and because we haven't done an inventory of our heart, we, we don't understand why we're not making progress in our Christian walk while things are holding us back, while our marriages are not improving, while our relationships are in shambles, it's because we haven't pulled up the anchor to those things in our life. We haven't put them away. So interesting to me, I love the tense when I have a Friday morning study and we go in, in, we dig deep into the Word of God. We look at things like the Greek and the Hebrew and the tenses and, and, and the voice. And So I just want to just show you some of that tonight. The tense for this get rid of, it's the aorist imperative. It's a command. 
And it means to be carried out even with a sense of urgency. He's saying, do this and do it now. It's urgent that you put those things off in your life. It's in the passive tense, which is just fascinating to me. It means that, that, that it's a, it is, we are to allow it to be put away in our life, that we cooperate with the Spirit of God, and He puts it away in our life. It's in the passive voice which usually signifies that the subject is acted upon by an outside source. And the picture is that we have to yield to the Holy Spirit so that he can exert, exert his influence or effect on our hearts, which allows us to carry out this command. See, here's where the grace message, you know it's my stickler. People say, oh, Rhea, that's works. You're telling people to put off those things. It's works. No, it's not. Maybe you've never tried to put off bitterness and rage and anger, malice and slander, because if you have, you would understand it takes a work of grace. Grace, dear ones, the definition of grace is God's enabling power. God enabled us to be saved. It is by grace that you've been saved. I didn't deserve it. I couldn't earn it. It's by grace I've been saved. But that same enabling power that saved me now enables me to put off bitterness and rage and anger and malice and slander and every form of criticism. It enables me to forgive somebody who I don't even want to look at. It enables me to be kind to somebody I want to smack silly. Do you see it's God's enabling power? It is by grace that we've been saved, that we're be being saved right now, that we are being delivered from those things. Jesus. I don't want you to miss the fact that all of these things are related. They're all tied systematically together. They're all a part of that hoarding process. You don't get bitter unless you've been wronged, unless there's something to forgive. You've been hurt by somebody, injured somehow inside, and you've nursed it instead of letting it go. And now that bitterness is like an acid that's building up inside of you. And you might be able to keep it down for a little while, but sooner or later it will find a way out. It bubbles out in resentment. It bubbles out in cynicism. It bubbles out in control. It bubbles out in blame. It bubbles out in depression. It bubbles out in despair and hopelessness. It bubbles out in anger and hatred. And that bitterness is a cesspool of misery. And the longer we refuse to realize God's, oh, my favorite verse, his pleasant path leads to pleasant places. You know that's my favorite verse. Because sometimes God's word doesn't make any sense at all. Anybody with me? It's foolishness sometimes. The wisdom of God is wiser than the foolishness of men, or the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men. Sometimes I look at God's word and I'm like, really? That's craziness. You, you want me to do that? It's absurd sometimes. But his pleasant path always leads to pleasant places. When we do things his way, it always leads to life. See, don't wait till you're my age to get this. See, I have a lot of words stored up here. Many of you can quote it inside, outside, and backwards, but it hasn't reached this place to where you recognize it as truth. Do you know that God is the only truth teller? He is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. It's not even that God won't lie. It's that he 
can't lie. It's impossible, the scripture says, for God to lie. So that means that every word in the Bible is yea and amen. It's truth. And so if he says, Rhea, forgive me because it's good for you, it must be good for me. If he says, be kind and compassionate, I, it must be good for me. If he says to let him go, it must be good for me. If he says to, to, to pray for my enemies and bless those who persecute me, it must be good for me. And we have got to start coming to a place, church, where we stop arguing with truth, with truth, and, and not, not, not being able to lean on our own understanding. I taught about that last week. Trust the Lord with all your heart. Trust his word with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding of the circumstances. You don't have enough details to understand what's going on. Just in all your ways, acknowledge him. Acknowledge him as Lord. Acknowledge him as a truth giver. And he'll direct your path into pleasant places, into life. So when he says get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, malice, and slander, it's time to stop hoarding and to let him go. Here's the solution. He says be kind. Are you kidding me? Be kind to people who've hurt me? That word be is interesting. It means to bring into existence or become. Oh, baby, I want to park here and preach, but I'm going to get you out early and on time tonight. But to become kind, to bring kindness into existence. It's a choice. I want to slap you silly, <laughs> but I'm going to obey the command of the Lord, and I'm going to bring kindness into existence when I relate to you, and I'm going to choose to be kind. And the more I choose to be it, the more I'm going to become it. It's going to be a part of my life. It's present imperative. It's a command. And it's in the present tense. It means to make this your habit. Make it your habit of being kind. I love that. Keep being kind. It's in the middle voice. It calls for the subject to, oh, so good. The middle voice calls for the subject to initiate the action and then participate in the results or the effect of that action. So that means when I'm kind, I have to initiate the action, but I get to benefit from the results. See why it's so important that we understand tense and voice? This is saying that while I might have to initiate the action out of an act of my will, baby, when I'm kind, I get to benefit from the results of that kindness. Be kind, he says. That word kind, uh, you know, you, you might have a picture even when I say it, what kind is. What would you say kind is, anybody? Loving. What else would you say kind is? If I'm going to be kind to you, what would it mean? Sensitive, Sensitive to your needs, yeah. What else? Generous. What else would kind be? I'm caring. Yeah, what else? Sacrificial, those are all words that came to mind. I was like, yep, I'm not, why should I even look this up? Because that's what kind is, right? And then I clicked on the definition, and it means fit for use. It means useful. Rocked my world. That when I'm kind, when I'm all those things you guys said, because that is what kindness is, I become, I become fit for use. I don't know about you. There's nothing I want more than for God to use me. And he says right there, I become fit for use when I'm kind. 
He says, be tenderhearted. And, and, and that word means from the bowels. This is who Jesus was. He felt everything in his bowels. Some of you have irritable bowel syndrome. And when you get upset, you feel it in your bowels. Or, so you know what this word means, don't, don't you? And it means compassionate, easily, quickly moved to love, pity, or sorrow. It describes having tender feelings for someone else. That's how we're to live as Christians, to be easily moved towards pity and compassion. That means when you hurt me, when you do me wrong, I'm not going to be angry and resentful and bitter and have malice towards you. I'm going to choose to be kind to you, and I'm going to ask God to give me a revelation of why you would hurt somebody like that and arrive at a place of pity and love. You see, the people who have hurt you, they're just tools that the enemy used to get to you. Does that not make you feel sorry for them? That somebody is so um, unaware, so self-unaware, that they don't even realize they're being a tool in the hand of the enemy to get to you. You see, that changes everything, doesn't it? You can pity somebody like that. You can have sorrow for somebody like that. And you can certainly do what we're told to do next, forgiving one another, just as Christ and God forgave you. That word, forgive, means to give freely, unconditionally, to forgive a debt. Forgiveness is to release them from the debt they owe you. When people hurt us, we're like, you owe me. You owe me. I want to see you pay for what you've done. Forgiveness means you cancel that debt that they owe you. And that's the only way to life. Look at the last four letters of forgive. It means forgive, to give. That's what's required for forgiveness, that you give it, that you offer it free of charge. Again, the tense is present. It means it's to be our continual practice, our habit. We live the habit of forgiving, of being a forgiving person. It's middle voice. It, it, it's that we initiate the action and then we participate in the effect, that we get to benefit from the results. Look at this whole passage. It points to the reason people become bitter, because they refuse to forgive. The heart is deceitful above all things. I, there's so much that I, w- I want to, to tell you, but I, I really feel like I need to close. But I just, uh, this is major for me. Brendan did such a good job here. This is exactly what I wanted it to look like. Because all of that bitterness, rage, and anger, malice, and slander, just a barricade. If I can make you look bad... I don't have to feel the pain of what you did. If I can be angry enough at you, I don't have to, to sit with what you did to me. I, if, I can, if I can just treat you with ill will, I feel better. And I barricade my heart. And I keep you at a distance so you can't hurt me again. It's a barricade. I started out with the illustration about my hoarder friend. I, I wish so badly that you could have been in that house with me. Leslie said, I, I've watched it on TV, and I'm like, no, you, you, you can't even understand. 
TV doesn't even depict it. My heart broke for her. And yet that's the condition that some of our hearts are in tonight. We have been hoarding and hanging on to offense. We've been hoarding and hanging on to wrong that's been done to us, words that have been said to us. The definition of hoarding, uh, website after website, is the pain of letting go. You hoard because the pain of letting it go hurts too much. Can I tell you, it might be painful to let those things go tonight, but the life that's going to come with it is worth every moment of it. I've watched the hoarding shows on TV and I see the pain in people and how they have to choose to, to let things go and they, they weep over the things they're letting go. And, and I'm going to ask Courtney to just come up and, and close in a song. Uh, but while she does, I, just, I want you to just stand to your feet for a moment. And I want you to understand that this is a command from Scripture. And, and we've got to come to a place, church, where we stop excusing our refusal to obey God's word. And we start to take it seriously. He says, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. That word unwholesome was a word that was used in Paul's time to describe fish that had set out in the dock too long in the sun. It was a picture of foul words, of smelly words, of, of rancid words coming out of our mouth. Hatred, gossip, criticism, slander curse words. He said, don't let any of that come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up. Do your words build others up or do they tear others down? And don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Please get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger. Remember, do this and do it now. There's a sense of urgency. Get rid of it. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, malice, and slander in every form of criticism. Be kind, church, and compassionate, and forgive each other, just as Christ and God forgave you. If you go into chapter 5 of Ephesians, it says, be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love. I want you to go from this place tonight and begin to imitate him and get rid of those things. And so I want to give you a, ch a chance as Courtney sings. I, I want you to just do an inventory of your heart and say, have I been hoarding? Is it smelly and stinky and cluttered in my heart? Because you see, the more, this is the principle of God, the more room we make for him, the more room he takes. When we put off those things, he puts on more of himself. It gives him more room to rule and reign and to filter it, to infiltrate our life with the sweet Holy Spirit. That's worth it to me. And so as Courtney sings, I, I want you to just examine your hearts. I'm so sorry somebody did you wrong. I'm so sorry that you've been hurt and wounded and that you may never hear that person say, I'm sorry, let me say it for them. Hear the Father say it for them. But love yourself and your freedom enough to say, I'm done hoarding that. I'm done hanging on to that. I'm done barricading myself in.
given you my all, Lord. I'm putting it off. I'm pulling up the anchor, the thing that's holding me down. And I'm going to sail away with you. 